0: Today's reading is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 17, starting to read at verse 22, which you can find on page 1113 in the church Bibles. Paul then stood up in the meeting of Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious For as I walked around and looked carefully at all your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything. As some of our, of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that, he, that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Now we're delighted to welcome Neil Salt. So Neil, perhaps you'd like to uh, introduce yourself. Okay. Thank you very much.
1: Are we okay now? Uh, thank you. Thank you, Liz, for your welcome, and uh, it's a great pleasure to be here this uh, this morning. Uh, first time here at St. Stephen's, so special uh, special privilege to be here. And also, I uh, naturally want to apologise if I do anything odd uh, that you're not used to. I'll try not to. Um, I am by birth Mancunian, so I'm not that far from my, my roots. And uh, I was a late starter, a slow starter in the Christian faith, only coming to faith, really, at university, being confirmed at the age of 19. Uh, but then things moved on fairly quickly and I've been ordained now for 28 years I believe, which is hard to believe but there we go, 28 years in, in ordained ministry in the church uh, I won't bore you with all the details of the ins and outs of all that but uh, the, the last place I was in was at Thornton near Blackpool and I was there for about 8 years 3 years ago for family reasons decided I was going to step aside so I'm now a house husband and a spare vicar so um, that's why I can be here today with you so um, that's kind of a very brief explanation of who I am and where I've come from. And uh, maybe I've now got two or three visits here in the coming weeks, so maybe I'll be able to reveal more as time goes on. Okay, thank so you. Okay, so thank you.
0: So shall I just pray for you?
1: Thank again? you very much.
0: Father God, just thank you for bringing uh, Neil to us this morning. Uh, thank you for the word that you have placed upon his heart. And we just pray that, uh, that we will have ears to hear uh, what uh, you have to say to us through Neil's message this morning. Amen. Amen.
1: This is where I drop my notes, isn't it, and the <laughs> scrubble on the floor. I'd just like to offer a prayer before I begin, thank you. accept my words, O Lord, and the responses of all our hearts, that your holy name may be glorified today. Amen. Okay, so, excellent, thank you. Uh, do you ever stop, I wonder, do you ever stop and, and reflect on the marvellous route by which you came to face, or maybe that route you are still taking today, it's sometimes worth pausing to, to think about the people who have been influential in that journey that you've taken and are still taking, uh, giving thanks for those who've helped and are helping to bring the Christian story alive for you. Now, there have, of course, down the ages, been many remarkable figures in the life of the church, who have contributed greatly to the spread of the gospel across the world. And amongst that list of, of so many, almost countless people, one person I would like to include is George Muller. we have a picture? Somewhere in there, there's George Muller, uh, who was actually a very rebellious young man. George was into all kinds of things he shouldn't have been into. will tell you more about that in a minute. But... In uh, 1825 he experienced a dramatic turnaround in his life and eventually that brought him to England and eventually led to him becoming an internationally renowned and respected evangelist and the founder of an orphanage in Bristol which cared in his lifetime for about 10,000 children. That's just the first of five homes that he was able to build in Bristol, the Muller Homes. And I'm particularly interested in George and his homes because one of the people he helped was my great-grandmother, a lady called Mary Ellen Piddington. I never met her, um, but I've learned a lot about her through learning about George Muller. I never knew she was in an orphanage. I never knew about George Muller until I started doing a bit of family history research and lots of things came to light. So there's Mary, Mary Ellen, my great-grandmother. Now back to George. I said George was... Rebellious. It doesn't look rebellious there, in his more mature years. But as a young man, he was terrible. He was a liar. He was a cheat. He used to steal. He even stole from his friends on a trip to Switzerland and defrauded his his father. He actually served time in prison for failing to pay some hotel bills. He was a shocking young chap, what some translations of the Bible would call a notorious loose liver in the extreme. Not the kind of person you'd expect to be remembered, for being a great evangelist and philanthropist. But then in 1825, as I mentioned, at the age of 20, he found himself in a Bible meeting. Now, this is something uh, that Muller said about the meeting he went to. As I did not know the manners of the brethren and the joy they have in seeing poor sinners, even in any measure caring about the things of God, I made an apology for coming. The kind answer of this dear brother I shall never forget. He said, Come as often as you please. House and heart are open to you. And the experience of that evening, of the prayer and the fellowship and the study, had a tremendous impression on him. And he went on to say, I was happy. Though if I'd been asked why I was happy, I could not clearly have explained it. I have not the least doubt that on that evening, God began a work of grace in me. That evening was the turning point in my life. And later on in life, he reflected, saying about this period in his life, how he gave himself fully to the Lord. Honours, pleasures, money, my physical powers, my mental powers, all were laid down at the feet of Jesus. And I became a great lover of the word of God. I found my all in God. Now, it's fair to say that people who experience a dramatic change of heart when they encounter Christ in the new way or for the first time, perhaps, go on to exercise a remarkable ministry in Christ's name. And, of course, today we are thinking about one such person, St. Paul. In our reading from Acts, we hear there in that reading a dramatic part of his wonderful and extensive missionary exploits. In particular today, we meet him in Athens during his second missionary journey, probably sometime between the years 48 and 51 AD. We have another slide, there we are. Paul and Silas, before our passage today, Paul and Silas had been getting into trouble in Macedonia, especially in the town of Berea, marked marked towards the top left-hand corner, near Thessalonica in Greece. I've never been, but I'm sure it's beautiful. But that's where he was, and he was, he was getting into bother with Silas. There was opposition to their preaching, and it had resulted in some degree of civil unrest. And so Paul had escaped to the coast and was escorted by some of his fellow believers down the Aegean Sea to Athens, which you'll see, Matt, as well on the map. I'm sure your geography is wonderful, but just in case, that will help. Now, in Athens, he wandered the streets, and I think it's in uh, Acts 17, verse 16. Page 1113, I believe, in the Pew Bible. I've lost it in mind now. Turned the page the wrong way. Yes. Um, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, waiting for Silas and Timothy, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. He was distressed at what he saw around him. And just ponder briefly there, what maybe do we feel distressed about today as we walk around the streets of our own city? What what makes us distressed in Christ's name? And he debated with the philosophers, with Jews and Greeks alike, speaking out in favour of Jesus Christ, trying to tell them about Jesus, trying to turn them away, if you like, from their, their worship of idols, instead to following the way of Jesus. And this led to him being taken to where we start our passage today, taken to the Areopagus. He had been preaching strange ideas. Just before our passage started, we hear... This, said, they, this is verse 19 in chapter 17. They took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are preaching? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears. We want to know what they mean. They took him to the Areopagus. So next slide, please. For so, There is a picture of the Areopagus as it stands today. It's a hill, basically, The Areopagus was just a meeting place for a special council that took on the name, the Areopagus, because that's where they met. The members of that council in ancient Greece would have been worthy senior members of society, generally speaking, ex-magistrates and people like that, very worthy pillars of the community. And they would meet together to decide on certain matters of justice. So the meeting place that was a hill eventually turned into a kind of law court for the want of a better term. Maybe here then, Paul was being put on trial in some way. People wanted to ascertain whether it was appropriate for him to be preaching this new message that he brought, or was he actually disrupting the nice mechanisms of Athenian society? Was he trouble, or was this interesting new uh, philosophy he was bringing? Was he to be tolerated or driven out of town. And so, come to the next picture, a lovely illustration of Paul addressing the council of the Areopagus. Now, what does Paul do when he comes to speak to the council? This is where we come to what we've heard this morning. Paul stood up in the meeting of the the Areopagus, verse 22, and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. He kind of almost commends them for their, their faith, for the fact that they are religious, that they, they are. He's saying, Yo, you're really good. you're very religious. This is very impressive. And then he mentioned about looking at the objects of worship, and then he brings to their attention the altar to an unknown God in verse 23. And then he goes on to explain to them that, as far as he's concerned, they are, they are worshipping in a state of ignorance. They don't know what they're worshipping. They've even got an altar to an unknown God, just in case. And he takes them from there to say, well, this is how it should be. You know, the, what, what is it to worship the true God? God is not confined to idols made by human hands, but he is the creator of all, the source of all life. And we can find him. We don't have to go to an unknown God because we can find him. Because God is very close to us, he tells them. And he even quotes from a Greek poet who says, we are his offspring. It's a wonderful thing he does. Showing them, if you like, yes, saying to them, yes, you, you are commendable for your religious trust and faith, but actually, you're in ignorance, we have something wonderful, something life-changing to offer to all of you in Christ. And therefore, he says, coming now to verse 29, therefore, since we are God's offspring, referring back to the Greek poet he'd quoted from, we should not think that divine being is like gold or silver or stone. Therefore, he says, we should turn away We should turn away from worshipping false man-made idols. Turn away from pandering to our own image of the divine. Turn away from God in our image. And learn instead to know and to follow the true God revealed to us in Jesus Christ. The one who was brought back from the dead to open up for us access to all God's grace. And who will, he says, judge the world at the appointed time. And that, of course, is bringing in uh, a reference to justice there is appropriate when he's talking to people who are administering justice. They understand what he's talking about. Now, I'm sure we can understand all that from our perspective. We can understand yes, they're worshipping in ignorance. Paul tells them the right way to do it, following Christ, worshipping Christ. But what I like particularly about what Paul does in this passage is the way in which he starts with the people where they are. He doesn't say, you're wrong, here's a new way of worshipping. He says, no, you're very religious, I'm impressed, but have you thought about this? He takes them from their position of ignorance and brings something new to them. He guides them to consider what they they do know about their worship, to look at things in a new way. He tries to convey to them this message about the risen Christ that fits very neatly with their view of life because they're already religious, they're already worshipping. And he takes them to a new understanding of God. But as I say, he doesn't just bring it in and hit them around the head with it. He begins with the people where they are and debates with them from that starting point. And it sounds simple. It sounds obvious. But I think it's really crucial for the way Paul worked, especially on this occasion. And I think it's crucial for us too. Because in a time when we are being urged as a church to spread the message of Jesus in a community where people don't know him and don't follow him. And we are being urged to not sit back and wait for people just to come through the door, but to be out in the community, outside these walls, bringing Christ to the people. In that situation, we also need to engage with people where they are. We can learn from what Paul did in his visit to Athens and his speech to the Areopagus. We need to be aware where people are now. And that sounds simple, it sounds trite, but it's crucial. We need to know what inspires people. We need to know what makes them happy. What makes them angry or excited. We need to understand how people are spending their time and what they value. That's what Paul did. He saw what they valued and worked from there. And if we wish to engage with society and make the gospel alive and meaningful for everyone, we have to start with where the people are. And not simply expect an understanding of everything that we hold dear as Christians. Not expect them to want to come and join us as we are here today. Now I'd like to confess at this point that my first encounter with the church was not actually uh, an evangelical revival meeting, it wasn't a diocesan fund day. It wasn't any kind of formal missionary outreach. The thing that made me commit myself to learning and growing within a Christian community was actually a cheese and wine party. Now, that sounds trivial, but it was important. I was a first-year student in North Wales, in Bangor, and I responded to an invitation to the Freshers' Week welcome party, which was a cheese and wine And I was struck at that moment when I went to that place. I I, I didn't know what to expect, I must say that. I didn't know what a chaplaincy meant. I expected to see people wearing like monks robes and all sorts of weird things. But I've met a group of fellow students, young people like myself, who were sincere, were warm and welcoming and fun and thought about life very, very deeply, but enjoyed life and, and, and were just a wonderful, wonderful welcoming community. And I responded to that evening at the cheese and wine party by the following Sunday, going along on the Sunday morning to the chapel service. And I wrote in my diary that night, I enjoyed this morning at the service, I think I'll go again, but I won't get too involved. (laughs) Never say that to God. So don't forget to get your names down on those rotors. Sadly, now that particular chaplaincy centre doesn't exist. Changes and cutbacks have led to the closure of the chaplaincy centre. And it's sad, I think, that nobody else can now go along to that place to a cheese and wine or sausage and cider or whatever else they did and encounter the chaplaincy community and be drawn that way into the fellowship of faith. That's that's really sad. It saddens me that that's not possible for new people going to that place. Which brings me to Our next slide. A derelict church in the process of demolition. A very sad sight, a very tragic sight. That looks like it was a pretty big church. It was in Philadelphia, apparently. A big church which is now redundant. It's an awful phrase, a redundant church. It's such a sad, sad phrase. But it, going back to the chaplaincy and how things have changed... It reminds me of what I once heard in a Methodist uh, minister's sermon described as the deforestation of the Christian memory. The deforestation of the Christian memory. And really we're saying here that the presence of the church in people's lives is greatly diminished, certainly since I was a child. The presence of the church in the community in many places is greatly diminished. The influence of the church in society seems to have you know, diminished over the years. The experiences that we take for granted as keen and active Christians is not the same as the experience of vast waves of society. People do not have the background of faith in popular culture in the same way that maybe there was when I was a child. People do not necessarily share the vocabulary of the Christian faith, as, again, I think was still the case when I was young. There are many families where there are several, many, many generations of the family with no Christian connection. And the shared values and the memory of faith is lost in so many places and to so many people. That's why we need to get to know people. That's why we need to make those connections. And like Paul did, start from where they are. It's also one reason why I I really... I'm very, very pleased when, up at St. Michael's in Ashton, where I help out a lot, when we have a baptism party coming in. These baptism parties can be huge. Often nowadays, it's like people have it instead of a wedding, and there are so many people there, and there are photographs and all sorts of stuff going on. And it can be chaos, and it can be distracting. But I think it's wonderful that there's a crowd of people in church that day who are not normally there, who are still coming because somebody in the family wants the baby to be baptised. I know that out of that crowd of people, say 100 people, I know that next week we're not going to see anybody from that group in church. But I also believe that somebody in that congregation is feeling warmly welcomed in the church and by the church. Somebody may be feeling their heart being challenged or warmed in some way. If not that day, then maybe the next, or maybe the next year or in years to come. They may not come next Sunday, but they are there, they are accepted and welcomed for who they are and where they are. And seeds can be planted. And I think that is crucial. If you've got deforestation, you've got to somewhere start planting seeds And that's just one of many opportunities when we can, as a church, plant seeds of faith and hope. I just want to get back to George Muller before I finish. So if we go back... Here we are, thank you. I want to go back to to George Muller because one of the things about George Muller that is uh, similar with with St. Paul is that Muller worked entirely by faith. There's a quote from Psalm 81, verse 10, Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. I haven't, got the, oh yes, no, I haven't got the page reference, I'm afraid, for your Bibles. I'm sorry. But if you wanted to look at Psalm 81, uh, verse 10, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. And he goes on to say, but my people would not listen to me. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own devices if my people would listen to me, if Israel would follow my ways, how quickly would I subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes? George Muller heard that psalm, and for him it became a watchword. Open wide your mouth, and I will fill it. He believed that God was speaking to him, that if he would listened to God, if he was trusting of God, if he had deep faith in God, God would reward that faith. Now, he began very small. He he just had this this compassion for the the children of Bristol who were destitute on the streets. He wanted to do something to save them. And he had just apparently two shillings to his name. But from that beginning, he established an amazing philanthropic enterprise. But he never actually appealed for funds. He never made an appeal. He never, as we do now, apply for lottery grants and put out public appeals. He didn't do that. He just did it by faith. He prayed diligently. Every day he would spend in the morning an hour, two hours in prayer and reading the Bible. Every day he did that. He believed that God would bless that work if it was, if God was, was in that work. And during his lifetime, working entirely by faith, George Muller raised one and a half million pounds, which in today's money... Is calculated at something like 86 million pounds. Not a bad result for somebody just doing it all by faith, and all to God's glory, of course. God does do amazing things through His faithful servants, and George Muller is testament to that. That picture. Oh, that's right. That picture shows five big orphanages that he built. Now, we don't build big orphanages now, but then it was, it was a good thing. It was, it was an appropriate response to the situation he found. And he brought to safety 10,000 children in his time in those five homes, all by faith. God does do amazing things through his servants. But often, of course, it's at the personal level that we see the influence of God working through somebody's life most clearly. After Paul had spoken at the Areopagus, we are told in chapter 17, verse 34, page 1114 in your Bible, just after our reading finished, we are told in verse 34 that a few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. Individuals responding as their hearts and minds were touched by the message of Paul. And it's the same with George Muller. Ten thousand children is a truly phenomenal achievement. But it was also achieved at the personal level, as I referred to my great-grandmother before. And this, this is an entry from the, the, the logbook of the, the Muller homes for Mary Piddington's departure at the age of 14. And it reads, Mary Ellen Piddington admitted under number 7883 on the 18th of March 1890, born the 12th of April 1879 at Tottenham, Middlesex, was sent on the 8th of June 1896 as a housemaid to Mrs Brailsford, 4 Park Terrace, Newcastle-on-Tyne, and added at the end, a believer. That, I believe, refers to Mary. She was leaving as a believer and here I have the Bible given to her in 1893 when George Muller was still alive and active in his work at the age of 88. It's inscribed to Mary Pennington, a reward for lessons, July the 18th, 1893. And it's full of little notes and page turnings and things. She obviously used this extensively at some point in her life. And it reminds me about George Muller and how he changed the course, not just of 10,000 children, but of my great-grandmother's life, personally. Paul, in his day, transformed the lives of many individuals and communities. And none of that, of course, would have been possible without his firm faith in Christ Jesus and his readiness to let the Holy Spirit be his guide as he carried on God's work. And so... To draw to a close, that brings us, I think, back to us. What is the Holy Spirit saying to you? Are you listening? Are you ready to follow where you're called? And who is God calling you to reach out to today as you attempt to share the good news of Christ with the community of this parish? We need to be listening and ready to be responding in faith. And whether we achieve great things on the world stage, or whether we simply make life a little bit better for a few people around us, great or small, we all have an important part to play. Our last picture, the picture we have up here, shows in the middle a gathering of the faithful from all the nations. And around it, there's some pictures. We've got St. Paul, George Muller, and Mary Ellen Piddington. Three believers who did their best to follow Christ? Just three of the countless of the saints of history of the ch- in the history of the church. And there, the bottom right, there's a blank for us, for each one of you. As we think about those who have gone before us, those who have influenced us, those who have guided us, and those who do so today, let us pray that we will all be ready to add ourselves to that to that great list, that great number of the faithful with Christ. Let us pray. (coughs) Father, we thank you for the people who have and are guiding us in our Christian journeys. We thank you for the example and the witness of the great saints of history. And pray that we will know that we too can stand with them. That if we are faithful to you, if we listen to the work of the Spirit if we hear you speaking to us through your word we too can achieve great things in your name so bless us and use each one of us here today to your glory through christ our lord amen